0: and follow BSL on Twitter. On Twitter. On
1: Twitter. On Twitter. On Twitter. On Twitter.
0: On Twitter. Welcome to On the Verds. This is Zach Spedden, joined is always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. On the Verds is part of Baltimore Sports and Life Radio. And on tonight's ep- episode, we're joined by a special guest as Ben Badler, senior writer of Baseball America, joins us on the podcast. Ben provides baseball analysis, prospect ranking, and scouting reports for the publication. And he was kind enough to join us tonight. Ben, how are you?
1: I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate this. We really appreciate having you on. So
0: a lot of uh, followers of minor league baseball know you for your coverage of Baseball America. And over the years, that has focused a lot on the international free agent market. And in your mind, just how big of a difference is the Orioles' presence in Latin America and in the international market as a whole since Michael Elias took over compared to where it was before?
1: Uh, I I don't even know there's a word to describe (laughs) how big of a a difference um, it is. I mean, it's, you know, for years, I mean, the the Orioles, I mean, you you know, you had the Marlins and maybe a couple other teams that were sort of laggards getting really heavily involved in international signings. Um, But the Orioles were just kind of on their own island in terms of, of uh, just being completely out, out of the loop and and out of the picture and, and a total non-factor when it came to signing amateur players of of any noteworthiness from uh particularly from the Dominican Republic and, and Venezuela. You know, you saw them dip in and, and sign some uh you know some Cuban free agents every now and then and you know they would sign some players from Asia and then of course they you know stepped on their own feet in in some instances over there as well but um I mean you can see like who's who's the best international prospect in like the upper levels of the minor league system right now for the Orioles like it just they they, don't, they just don't exist <laughs> and it's it's unfortunate because it's it's such a rich source of talent and and there's so many good players obviously coming out of there I mean you just look around the division and you see Vlady Jr. and Wander Franco and Devers and Bogart's <laughs> it's, and and the Yankees, you know, have you know done a you know a nice job there too. So um it's it's just totally different now that they're willing to spend. I mean you're you're still you know, you're, you're gonna see some lag time in between when you're actually signing these players and, and obviously the market moves so fast. So even when you know Elias came in and you know the ownership decided to change their you know, their approach and and they brought in Kobe Perez. You know, these guys are doing a really good job there, but still you're, you're operating years behind (laughs) other clubs, not only in terms of just building out your own staff there as an organization, but trying to be competitive to sign the top players. The other clubs have already kind of beat you to the punch on, on a lot of those guys, which is why, you know, this most recent signing class was kind of, kind of a different boat for them and, and they got opportunistic uh In the previous signing period with guys like Samuel Basayo and and Michael Hernandez, when you know those guys became available to to sign but uh yeah now it's you know the the Orioles are now just like any other team internationally, whereas before it was twenty nine teams and then the Orioles were kind of off doing their own thing or or really you know just not doing much of anything. <laughs>
2: And, as fans, obviously, this is new to Orioles fans, but it's tough to evaluate just how good an international signing class is outside of how much the players signed for compared to other players and what little we read about from that from you and other outlets. So,, uh, could you give us an idea of how well the Orioles did compared to other teams in this newest class?
1: yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the tough things right now is that the you know when I started covering international players in two thousand and eight, And, you know, over the, you know, for those first few years, you would have players who would, you know, reach commitments to sign with a club before July 2nd, but it would be, you know, maybe months before July 2nd, right? So everybody's seeing these guys and evaluating these players and they, you know, they started with a bonus pool system in, I believe, 2012 and that, you know, it. You you know, the, the deals just started getting earlier and earlier. So I've, you know, I've been writing about this for you know close to a decade now, but it's it's just gotten to the point where you you have clubs and and players who are, you know, players who are committing to a club, you know, two years plus in advance of when they're eligible to sign. And then of course MLB moved the signing date back with COVID. Uh, from July 2nd to January 15th. So add another six months. And, you know, it's not like in the United States where, all right, you have the top freshmen or, I mean, geez, even eighth graders in the country, it's kind of ridiculous, but it's just how how the process works. Like, you know, these guys, these kids commit to a college, you know, when they're in eighth or ninth grade. And all right, well, then they it's not like nobody sees a kid except for Mississippi State or, or Vanderbilt or wherever they're going to school. Uh, everybody sees every, you know, all these players leading up to basically the day of the draft almost. Um, but internationally, you know, once you commit to a team, then that player essentially stops being seen, uh, at least in a competitive environment consistently by the 29 other clubs not necessarily because they're being hidden by that club it's just well all right if i already have an agreement in place with a club why am i gonna spend money going around and doing all these showcases and going all these different academies and you know maybe traveling even overseas to to different events when you know i already have a million dollar deal in place with you know somebody else so um that that that's made it even trickier you know that and then obviously COVID makes you know make makes things even more challenging both both for us and and obviously for uh you know for clubs too just trying to evaluate players so it's it's just a situation right now where um you know unfortunately it's 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 particularly difficult to evaluate just how good an international signing class is for one team relative to another and and these guys change so much too i mean it's I mean, that's one of my favorite things is, you know, especially in 2019 before the, you know, the pandemic started was, you know, these, these kids signed on July 2nd and, you know, then they go into their team academies. So, uh, and they'll play these unofficial games against each other and what, you know, what's called tricky league or Dominican instructional league. So more games. So just going around and, and seeing all those players that, you know, almost every team's class I, I was able to see and see them playing games and. It's amazing how much these players when, you know, when they're 16, 17 um, can change just so much in three months, four months, uh, eight months, or, you know, especially in some of these cases where, where people haven't seen them in, you know, a year or two years in, in some instances. So, uh, you know, they grow an inch, grow two inches, uh, put on 30 pounds, they start, you know, going from a, you know, a seven, two runner to a, a six seven runner. So you're seeing tool grades jumps from, you know, a full grade to three full grades. It's, it's just not like anything you really see from, you know, certainly from a typical double A player or or a college guy, uh, anything like that. So um, it's, yeah, like I was saying, it's, it's just the, the difference in information on those guys. um, You know, even if you were to ask, you know, a team about, you know, another team's players uh, they're probably not going to have super, detailed information on on those guys so it's just the the reality of how challenging it is to kind of stack up one class against the other right now especially because i mean look sometimes and, and pretty frequently it you know a team will tell me hey like you know we signed this guy for you know three four hundred thousand dollars or maybe even less and this guy might be already the best guy <laughs> in our class so things can uh, definitely change pretty pretty quickly when we're talking about players who are obviously, you know, 16, 17 years old uh, for, for the top guys a lot of times.
3: Uh, speaking of this year's class in particular for the Orioles, um, what can you tell us a little bit about some of these top guys they signed? Braylon Tavera, Leandro Arias. Were you able to see some of these guys uh, that got some of the bigger signing bonuses that Orioles fans are more familiar with right now? Have you been able to see them play? What kind of things stuck out to you with this class?
1: Yeah, Tavera, I saw playing uh, in the Dominican Prospect League. But again, it's, you know, it was like two years ago, uh, you know, got some updated information on him, obviously, since then. But, um, I mean, physically stood out, really, you know, athletic center fielder, um, good speed, uh, pretty solid tools across the board. I don't know, there's like one other than maybe just the speed that that really, really jumps out at you, but, um, you know, has a lot of things that teams prioritize is, um, you know, an athletic player who can, you know, has a good chance to, to stick at a, at a premium position. So as, you know, Orioles fans really are sort
0: of just getting used to this process of the team being relevant during the international signing period. Right. But right now what kind of looms in the background is the possibility of an international draft at some point in the future. In your opinion, are we close to that happening? Or do you think that that's kind of down the road and maybe still a little bit of a hypothetical?
1: I think it is very likely to happen in this upcoming CBA. I think the owners want an international draft. They've they pushed hard for it in the last CBA. I mean, you can go back and look at, I mean, when Sandy Alderson was at MLB. And I want to say like... <laughs> Nineteen ninety-two or something, they were guaranteeing that an international draft was going to come. So I can understand why people might think, oh, well, they've been saying this forever, and there's, you know, there still hasn't been an international draft. But um, I think at at this point, look, the the owners still want a draft, and the MLBPA pushed back last time, but then ultimately caved in on a hard spending cap. So I, I think the owners were pretty thrilled with that because. Their, I think their primary concern was to contain their labor costs because you had a previous system where teams were, you know, you had a bonus pool in place and then you had most of the league uh, pretty much. It was not a hard cap, so you could blow past your, your, your bonus pool and just not be able to sign players for more than $300,000 for the next two signing periods. But teams realized, oh, well, we could just have like one big signing class or we could sign a guy like Yohan Moncada or a Luis Robert, and we can still get pretty good players for less than you know $300,000 in the Dominican Republic and in, in Venezuela. So it wasn't much of a deterrent, but uh, when they got that hard cap, I think the, the owners had to have been high-fiving each other, but they still want in an in international draft. I, you know, I think one of the goals is to slow down the speed of, of these commitments that we were, Talking about earlier, and then the, the players association doesn't represent international amateur players, right? Their constituents are or their members are the players who are on 40 man rosters. So, you know, it, it's you know, it's nothing particular against uh, you know, Dominican or, or Venezuelan players. If you know, we, we've seen the same thing happen in the draft in the United States with spending restrictions getting put into place in the draft. Or the way that minor league baseball players are are treated and are paid. Uh, if you're not on a 40 man roster, the MLBPA is not really looking out for uh, you know for for you, and they're going to use those you know they're going to use those players as a, a bargaining chip to get something in exchange for the 40 man roster players. So um, right now, it's not a high like there's it's not a high priority for. Uh, either side, I don't think like there's or certainly not for the MLBPA, PA, uh, which is why I think it's likely to to come and the the union will get some, um, you know, I don't know if it's going to be a big benefit or a smaller benefit in exchange. Uh, but I think it's it's likely to come. But uh, there's obviously so many bigger issues that they have to work through. <laughs> Uh, and I'm uh, sure we all hope that they work through to uh, to actually come to to an agreement, but I do think it's coming. I, I could see it coming as soon as as next year. Um, but you know obviously it's all to be determined by this by this negotiation right now.
2: In the last few years since Elias took over, it seems like every time he makes a trade, he gets at least one or two international prospects thrown in at the back end of a deal. How important was that? for the Orioles to have them thrown in as final pieces and in, in deals the past few years. We love Gene Pinto. We think he has a huge amount of upside and you also have guys like Michelle Desson, Isaac DeLeon and Elia Prado. They seem to have some pretty solid upside too.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's become a more common tactic to try to poach other teams, uh, particularly like lower level international players before they get famous or before they get to, Low well, A. Obviously, the Padres did a pretty all right job with that, right? With like Fernando Tatis Jr. or you know Jordan Alvarez too. Um, you know Freddie Peralta was was in the lower levels when when the Brewers traded for for him. So it's it's these guys who are. I mean, and sometimes you know it's just all right. Well, it's a far away lottery ticket. You know, would we rather have him or you know the double A? You know, reliever whose upside is, you know, like probably realistic, like an up and down relief type arm. All right. Well, maybe we gamble and just hope for a little bit more upside. And if it doesn't work out, you know, not much lost here. Right. Um, But obviously you could also hit a huge, (laughs) I would say, grand slam in the case of, uh, you know, a Tatis Jr. Or or an Alvarez, somebody like that. So um, definitely hear from from a lot of different clubs, that are like, man, we had like nine different DSL guys to ask for in trades. And, you know, you partly you do that because you hope that the other GM or team president or whoever the ultimate decision maker is, is thinking, well, I don't know, like this guy's in the DSL. I'm not even sure I know who he is. I don't even know if I'm going to have a job by the time this kid ever gets to the big leagues and, and I want to win now. So let's get this trade done. But um, I, I, I do get the sense now that teams are – uh, or, or GMs are more protective of those players because they don't want to be the guy that's known for trading Fernando Tatis Jr. Right, so it's getting a little bit harder to uh, pluck those guys away. But it, it makes sense to to target those guys before they pop and get to you know get to low A and get you know famous and you know start populating a, a top 100 list, and then it's you know much much more challenging to uh, be able to trade for somebody
3: like that. Nice. Um, we, we are big on the belief that Gene Pinto is that next uh, Fernando Tatis guy, but we'll see in a couple of <laughs> years. Um, w- one thing that we really love is diving into the system is finding the the hidden gems uh, that a lot of other fans just aren't aware of. Uh, and one name that popped up in a lot of articles you wrote last year, um, looking back at last year's Orioles class, was this catcher by the name of Carlos Rodriguez. And that that name just popped out to me, and I was curious kind of what stood out to you about Rodriguez and why uh you were, you mentioned him a couple of times
1: uh carlos rodriguez and now i'm trying to cuz the padres signed a carlos rodriguez too <laughs> so i'm trying to make sure i have the my 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 uh my venezuelan catcher named carlos rodriguez <laughs> yeah uh, fairly uh, generic that. Right. but um, <laughs> but yeah he's yeah i mean he you know had us didn't play a ton this year but uh was kind of like a, a sleeper for them, a uh, guy who sounds like his projects to stick behind the plate for them, uh solid bat for, for a Venezuela, or, or sorry, for a, you know, for a catcher his age 17 or, you know, 18 years old now, 17, his, his first pro season, but um, you know, just, just we just see so many catchers <laughs> coming out of there. It's, it's just uh, uh pretty impressive. Like he's one of those guys where it's, you know, I don't think there's anything that you're going to see that you're going to be like, oh, wow, like this is like really jumps out at you right away. But he, like there's so many guys who are in that mold where, where you just look up like by the end of their career and you're like, wow, that guy played in the big leagues for like 10 years. Uh, You know, not saying that's necessarily the case. And right there's plenty of other players where they, you know, just like that, that, you know, end up getting released out of a ball. But he has that, uh, you know. The the ability to stay behind the plate on uh, a pretty solid bat for for his age, where I think he you know he's a, like as you said like a, a sleeper who, who could end up kind of sneaking up on on some people as he as he moves up.
0: Are there any other players in your mind that fit that mold over the last uh, signing class or two, especially for players that might be hitting low A or the Florida Complex League next year?
1: Um. Yeah, you know the Orioles signed some pitchers um, in their in some of their recent classes who I think are pretty interesting guys, and that's you know especially where I think you can get some good good values because I mean it's like there's so many. I mean I write up so many guys where it's like oh this guy is eighty eight to ninety one, you know some you know feel for a breaking ball with you know a lot of projection. And it, it just feels like you write up so many guys <laughs> with that uh, with that same report, and then all of a sudden some of them end up you know popping and, and touching ninety four, and then they get stronger and they're throwing ninety seven. Um, so it's it's hard to know exactly which one of these guys are are going to break out. I mean, there's certainly certain uh, projection indicators that you can look for, uh, but. There, there is a lot of uh, luck in, involved. So a lot of these times, a lot of times you, you do see these pitchers who are just not signing for, um, you know, big big money who end up being pretty good. But um, yeah, I mean like like Raul Ronhill, uh, who they signed out of uh, Venezuela. You know, six four, just a ton of space on on his body to fill out and throw harder. Uh, I think he's a pretty interesting guy. Uh, Moises Chasse. Um, another Venezuelan pitcher they signed a a right-handed pitcher who's you know not quite as as big but but another you know guy with some good physical projection um, you know attacks hitters and you know has pretty good feel for uh, spinning a curveball so it's you know like that like the 2019 class and and even last year or to some extent obviously they ended up getting uh, you know Basayo and Uh, Hernandez are are more premium guys but you know when they were kind of working from behind on on these other clubs uh, there's always pitching that that can pop so I think probably the um, you know the the pitching more so than some of the position players or you know I don't know I don't exactly know who yet is is going to be the one who pops from that group but uh, the the pitching is definitely what I would be keeping an eye on from uh, uh, some of those recent classes from uh, from the past couple years.
2: When it comes to the draft, uh, this current regime seems to really like these college hitters. That seems to be primarily what they go after. But since we think this is probably the last time the Orioles will have this super high top three type of uh, pick for at least quite a while, do you think that would lead them to consider a higher upside high school bat more than the past few years with the first pick? And uh, who would you take if uh, the draft was tomorrow with that?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think that's it's. The, the one guy who jumps out to me as a high school hitter where I could see the Orioles going that route would be uh, Tamar Johnson, uh, a shortstop from from Georgia, who is just a, I mean, phenomenal, pure hitter, baseball rat. Like he just I, I like I think if you look at the Orioles picks, I mean, oh, like, obviously, like Adley Rush was kind of a no brainer. Right. <laughs> so like, not, a, not a ton to glean from. No, but you know, like you said, they've they've kind of gravitated toward those college hitters, guys who put the bat to the ball and and have good approaches. Um, you know, somebody like you know Elijah Green or or Drew Jones, who are, are both obviously very good, and and you know, if the draft is today, would go I think in the top ten picks, if if not the top five overall picks, and and if some teams had the number one overall pick, like I think there are teams that would take each of those guys, number one overall. Uh, but just looking at the Orioles track record and, and the philosophies and um, both, both of the organization and, and some of the, you know, the people who are there making the decisions, I think Tamar Johnson fits the mold for them as far as what they've looked for. I mean, Johnson, he's, I, I, it's just such good, pure bats of ball skills. Uh, just a beautiful, left-handed swing, you know, you can knock him, I guess, because he's about five foot eight and, you know, kind of a thicker body, but I mean, he probably has, if not the best left-handed power in the high school class. Uh, he's got to be top two or, or three. I, I have no concerns about his power. I think he has a chance to be, you know, upside to be a, you know, a seven hit seven power guy and, and it's going to get to that power, a lot in games just because of how good of a hitter he is. Uh, he, like I said, he does have big raw power, but he's, I mean, it's a hit first mentality. He'll put the ball in play, good plate coverage, use the whole field. Uh, and then when he gets his pitch, he just does such phenomenal whippy bat speed to, you know, yank the ball out of the park in uh you know, out of, out of any park. I mean, he was hitting balls to the, you know, the back of the trop at uh, the the perfect game national showcase last summer. So, um, you know, I, I think like you know, Drew Jones and Elijah Green have, you know, big upside and and a lot of really exciting athleticism and and tools. But um, you know, if, if the if the Orioles do go with a high school guy at one, I, I think Johnson would would fit their mold a little bit more. And and if I had the the number one overall pick the draft right now, uh I, I'd be taking Termar, too. I, I just I just love him. I, I just I think he's just got a chance to be a really, really special hitter.
3: I'm sold. <laughs> uh transitioning to kind of the the system and the more the upper levels uh now but you're known to have this affinity for short hitterish players at the plate um and guys like taron vavra connor norby and even a uh, newly acquired cesar preto uh how do they stack up against this ideal that, that you have in mind there
1: yeah i mean i guess i just talked about uh you know <laughs> he kind of fits that mold i mean um yeah, I think sometimes shorter hitters just get overlooked sometimes. I mean, I look, I mean, Kobe Mayo, I, I love Kobe Mayo too, but it's it's easier to kind of see what jumps out about him right away. I, I think sometimes smaller players, you know, you, you question, they get questioned about how much, you know, how much power are they going to have, um, you know, and, and, and it, it can, can kind of work the other way too where, you know, one of the most important things you can do as a hitter is to control the strike zone. And if you're five nine, five ten, and some of these guys were five ten or really are listed at five ten or really five eight. Let's be honest. Like, you know, you, you have a smaller you have a smaller strike zone. Uh, pitchers have a narrower window where they have to come into you, and and you just have less, you know, less area to cover for your for your plate coverage compared to if you're, you know, six, six. And if you're six, six, you probably have really long arms. If you're, you know, five nine five ten, you probably have shorter arms. I mean, there's, you know, guys like Miguel Cabrera who are big guys with short arms and they're, you know, uh, he obviously he's a, a mutant. So he's a, he's a different <laughs> kind of guy, but um, you know, there, there are advantages to being a, a shorter hitter and having a, a shorter strike zone and, you know, shorter levers and, and, you know, being more likely to, you know, all things being equal to, to have a more compact, uh, more efficient swing. So yeah, that's, I mean, that's, you know, part of why I, I like Connor Norby. I mean, you just look at his track record at, at East Carolina, this, this guy is just a really, really good hitter. Um, I really like that pick for, for the Orioles last year. Um, it's, a, it's just a good swing, a ton of barrels in, in games. He, he knows the strike zone, uh, good pitch recognition, Um, don't know that he's going to have like a ton of power, but I I think he, you know, fits in as a a second baseman who's going to hit a lot and and get on base at a a really strong clip. So, um, I think that's, uh, like I said, I I really like that pick for them. I I think he's, he's going to be one of the, one of the better picks from, from that second round, I think.
0: So we asked, um, ourselves this question on a show recently and I'll pose it to you now. Who has the highest floor and the highest ceiling out of the group of Norby, Vavra, and Prieto?
1: Uh, let's see, Norby, Vavra, and Prieto. Uh, I mean, I guess you might say floor just for Vavra, just with him being so so advanced, or, or just you know being so much closer, I should say, to um, to the big leagues right now. Um, I do, I, like, I still think, I, I think the highest of, of Connor Norby of, of that group. So, I you know, I think he probably has the most upside, maybe you could argue for, like, I think he's going to move pretty quickly or at least could move if the Orioles want to be, you know, aggressive with him pretty quickly through, through the system. I could see him certainly finishing the, the year in double a and, and being in position to, You know, make an impact at the or at least reach the big leagues by by 2023. So I would go, I go upside Norby, maybe for Vavra, just just because he is so much closer. But I I think it's close between between the two of them.
2: How rare is it for a team to have the best position player prospect and the best pitching prospect at the same time? And considering health and getting adjusted to the majors in 2022, is something like that something that could help turn things around a little bit faster for at the major league level for the Orioles. Cause uh, we're dying for that to happen.
1: Yeah. I guess Otani doesn't count. Right. But <laughs> yeah, <it's the> <laughs> although he, we didn't have him number one at the, at the time. It's a good, I don't know. I like, we probably should look it up. Cause it's, it's, yeah, it's pretty impressive that the Orioles have uh, between Adley and, and Grayson. I mean, you know, it certainly was like a, it was not like a slam dunk, decision to for us to put adley rushman number one i i did think he was number one i'm not just telling you guys that because i'm on an <laughs> oracle podcast like I, I really did think you know the, his his ability you know look it was it, the, the conversation was between him julio rodriguez uh, of the mariners and, and bobby wood jr of of the royals um you know bobby wood jr a shortstop with power and you know really good athlete and has just breezed through the minor leagues so you know premium position shortstop who could hit 40 plus home runs is is pretty exciting uh so is julio rodriguez who's you know maybe the best combination of like hit you know on base and, and power in the minor leagues and also is a really good athlete too and has played some center field but really is more of a a corner outfielder but could be you know 400 plus on base and another 40 plus home run guy with good defense in in right field whereas rushman to me is uh, you know the the risk you know or the, the knock on him is just you know it's it's kind of it's it's a benefit and a drawback where all right he is a catcher so he plays the most valuable position but he's also just probably not going to play as many games regularly uh compared to julio rodriguez or bobby witt jr because you can't just throw a guy behind the plate for 162 games here, um, so that's that's part of it. But I, I just thought, I mean, this guy is like the perfect catching prospect. Almost, <laughs> it's um, you know, I'm sure Orioles fans have kind of heard that maybe before, so maybe there's some hesitancy there. But like, man, I just switch hitting catcher who who gets really good reviews defensively, and then obviously offensively. Um, I mean, I think it could be like a switch hitting Buster Posey type of, uh, you know, type of career if if everything goes right for him or, you know, could be a a plus plus hitter who does a great job of of controlling the strike zone and and hits for power, too. So um, he's exciting. But then, yeah, I mean, Grayson Rodriguez has just like freakish stuff i mean again like there was a conversation out you know between him and uh shane boz with with the rays and and to some extent i think george kirby belongs in in that conversation too with the mariners but um you know even when we're just talking about it with a lot of scouts and and, you know pro scouting directors and other front office folks around the league that you know we just did on on our within our staff um uh, it was pretty consistent to like yeah like Those other guys are good, and there's definitely a debate to be had, but um, a lot of uh, – I'd say the strong consensus seems to be leaning toward uh, Grayson Rodriguez because it's just – it's just the most complete arsenal, I think, of any of those guys. I mean, Shane Boz has really, really good stuff and give him a ton of credit for the way he's able to um, throw a lot more strikes this past year. But I think Grayson Rodriguez hasn't even – Deeper repertoire, uh, you know, throwing 100 miles an hour, uh, just like a wipeout slider, uh, a really good changeup, too, uh, a curveball that, that really works uh, for him, too. So it's, I mean, you got four pitches that can miss bats. So if on any given day, if, oh, like the changeup isn't working as well today, you can go to the slider more or, or vice versa. So uh, he just has so many different weapons to miss bats, uh, a track record of, of throwing strikes and, and just racking up a, a ton of strikeouts. So, um, usually I'm, I'm more conservative on, on pitchers, but I, I really do think, you know, if he shows he has the, you know, the durability to, you know, hold up 180 plus innings, uh, for, for a full season, I think he really does have the upside to be a, a number one type starter.
3: Thanks. Um, I'm sure a lot of Orioles fans just like to hear you keep talking about those two guys for <laughs> an hour and a half. Um,
1: <laughs> I, I could keep going on Grayson and, and Adley. I mean, those guys are those guys are special.
3: Yeah, uh, we did, and D.O. Hall too. I mean, you, you and Chris on your own podcast, the the hype you guys had for D.O. Hall was comforting to hear, uh, especially after his injury last year. But um, you know, looking at something that we've noticed, you know, the Orioles aren't as deep as the Rays. Uh, they may not be as deep as some of these other farm systems out there, but we put together our own top 30 expanded it to 50 and like, we, we like the depth that Michael Elias is putting together here. Um, but is that important to have, whether it be for future trades or just the cream rising to the top, or does it really come down to Ali Grayson D.L. hall living into their future projections?
1: I mean the, yeah, it looks so like the, the majority of the value that is going to drive the value of the farm system and is going to have an impact. At the major league level is going to be, you know, a guy like Adley here or, or Grayson Rodriguez, like there's no amount of like depth of prospects. Like if, you know, another team came to you and said, Hey, we'll give you, you know, our number uh, seven and 12 and 14 and 19 and 32 and 37 prospects and give us Grayson Rodriguez. You'd be like, no, 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 that's not, <laughs> we're, we're not doing that. That's like, we have an, you know, potential number one starter. We have, you know, Adley, Adley Rushman, a a potential franchise catcher right here. I mean, the the value just historically of, uh, you know, particularly on the position side, I mean, I was going to say the value of a a top 25 overall prospect in in baseball, uh, particularly a position prospect is is extremely, uh, it's just an extremely strong track record, not because like, you know, we're so smart at baseball America or anything like that. And I'm sure you can look at anybody else's list and see the same thing. Cause like, all right, those are just like the obvious guys, right. That pretty much everybody is going to have there. Um, and in particular, if you look at the track of like the top, you know, the number one prospect in the game or top three guys, I mean, you get certainly, you, know, you have some whiffs in there, but you also have, you know, hall of famers in there or, or guys who, you know, should be in, in the hall of fame in, in some cases. So, um, Yeah. I mean, those, 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 those really top elite guys drive the the value of the farm system, but, but yeah, having, having that depth too is, is important because you will have guys pop up from, you know, the lower levels or or guys who, you know, maybe just get overlooked for whatever reason. Maybe they're not like the toolsiest guys in the world, but, but they perform and, and they hit and maybe they have some questions on the profile, but um, you know, they end up, kind of being sneaky, good big leaguer. So the yeah, the depth of, of the system is is important too to go with those those really elite top high end guys. And, and that's where I think having an international program that's you know just having an international program is going to have a have a major impact on that. Cause you can see like right like the upper levels of the system, like we were saying before, you just don't have international prospects there. Uh, because for years, the Orioles were just neglecting the, the international market. So the, the depth of players from Latin America is, is really thin at the upper level. So, um, you know, it, it takes time, right? Like the, the main, cl- uh, you know, the takeover classes for, you know, Kobe Perez when, when he took over was what, 2000, uh, 2019. So all those guys are pretty much still in, in rookie ball right now so it's it's going to take some time those you know years where the orioles were ignoring uh latin america are going to continue to to hurt them for for their prospect depth but um you know i'm sure we're we're going to see that change over over the next few years as these guys start to uh you know make their way up the up the system and, and you see some more more depth that way sometimes you see comments
0: about the orioles player development uh system that are about their approach to the plate where they really focus on increasing the walk rate last year, focus on exit velocity power projection. Is this something that maybe the Orioles are a little bit unique in their hitting program, or is this an area that a lot of teams are focusing right now?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, there's other teams certainly with similar um, approaches. I mean, a lot of this, you know, <laughs> The, the, the way that you teach it and the way that you structure it and the way that you, um, you know, the, the way that you speak to players about it, the way you organize your coaching staff, uh, you know, your player development staff around it, uh, you know, the, some of the different techniques that you use for for players or the, or the data that you choose to show them or how you choose to communicate that is different. But, I mean, a lot of it goes back to like, you know, I mean, Ted Williams and then probably even before him about just getting a good pitch to hit. Right. So, it you know, a lot of these teams, I think, have this similar core philosophies about hitting. Now, I do think there are some teams that, um, you know, other clubs that maybe care less about uh, strikeouts and are, are trying to get guys to you know, pull the ball in the air more, that kind of stuff. So there's there's definitely different philosophies out there. But, um, yeah, like you said, I, I think the Orioles definitely, uh, both in terms of the players that they target through through scouting, through through their acquisitions at the uh, amateur or, or professional uh, level too, through trades, they're, they're looking for guys who, who make a lot of contacts, who are not uh, chasing pitches out of zone, make make good decisions with, you know, the pitches that they – they choose to swing that and, and they try to, you know, drill down on that in their, in their player, uh, you know, in their player development approach as well.
2: Just a couple more questions. As we look ahead at possible breakout candidates this year, what are your thoughts on the previously mentioned Kirby Mayo in his six foot five power frame?
1: Yeah, I, I think he's, uh, I think he's one of the better breakout candidates really in all of, of the minor leagues. Um, kind of I just wish he was healthy for all of last year. You know, he's you know 2020 20 draft pick out of high school, obviously like a big bonus over slot guy in, in the fourth round. And um I think they just kind of held him back in, in the complex league in part uh from like a knee issue, I think it was that that he had. And, and you you can still see some of that sounded like on on defense, but man, offensively this guy was crushing it. But between the uh the complex league and then when he got bumped up to Delmarva too so um you know big big raw power from him and uh you know some swing and miss but not a ton for again for you know a guy who's six foot five where you know that would be your concern on on somebody like him particularly coming out of high school um so he he actually does a pretty good job of of keeping the the strikeouts to a pretty manageable level for for a, a pretty big long levered guy um does have a a pretty good approach too so kind of a you know a smaller ish sample size from him um you know a 2020 high school player um who spent about half of his you know you know debut at least in the complex league so you you do want to see him do it at a a higher level and and you start to see him do that but um certainly a guy where a lot of the the arrows are, are pointing in the right direction so um, you know, some, some risk just cause he is so big. He, he maybe ends up at first base, but I mean, first baseman out of mash, but he, I think he will like, I mean, I'd, I'd love to see him be able to stay at third base. Obviously that would make him even, even more valuable, but uh, he, he has a type of offensive upside where even if it does end up being first base, he, he might be able to, to handle it over there too. Yes definitely super excited about Mayo's potential, but
3: another guy that I think Orioles fans are becoming a little bit more and more excited about is uh, Jordan Westberg. And from some of the companion pieces that came out over at baseball America to the top 100 list, it seems like Westberg is going to be the next Oriole to crack y'all's top 100 list. Um, He's got a four year under his belt, three levels. What does his outlook like outlook look like at at this
1: point? Yeah, definitely. A lot of, a lot of guys internally at BA were pretty, pretty high on him so we had him you know sixth in the Orioles system coming in and um I think we do have yeah we have five Orioles uh on our our top 100 right right now so I think he's kind of sneaking up on that conversation of guys who could uh pop in there next but yeah I mean you know uh shortstop with uh with plus speed um like you talked about pretty good track record uh you know maybe scuffled a little bit when he got to double a but Uh, Otherwise a pretty good tracker. Or you know, even just going back to Mississippi state of, uh, of hitting, putting the bat to the ball. Um, You know, I I think there's some sneaky power in there. Maybe like, I don't think he's going to be like a big, big power guy, but um, you know, he does have like a, you know, some strength to, uh, to him, but it's, I think it's probably more of a hit over power guy who, who, you know, relies on, on contact and, um, you know making good decisions at the plate and and being able to put the ball in play get on base at a uh, a pretty good clip so um yeah i think he's you know he's certainly kind of right on that cusp of uh you know if if we went to 150 I, I think he'd certainly be uh within within that range so he's kind of putting himself close to that top 100 conversation if he you know goes out and and i think he Probably goes off to or goes back to Double A, I should say, to um, to start this year. And, and if he's off to a really good start in there, I think we'll probably see him in that top 100 pretty soon. About a year ago, this time, um, Heston that was
0: a consensus top 100 prospect among the outlets to cover the minor leagues. Um, obviously, his you know recovery from myocarditis is a big concern at this point. But if he is healthy, fully healthy, and ready to go in 2022 gets a full season, and what will he have to do to work his way back into that top 100 conversation?
1: Yeah, that's like kind of like the huge X factor (laughs) in that system right now because, I mean, he was the second overall pick in the draft. I mean, I'm not saying he was the second-best player (laughs) in that draft. Obviously, there was some uh, financial uh, considerations involved there, but um, just hasn't played for – two years. Right. So there's <laughs> such a, such a huge wild card. Cause when he, when he was healthy, I mean, he was one of the best hitters in, in college baseball and in the SEC and had, you know, plus if, if not, you know, plus, plus power. So everything, I mean, if you really believe in I mean, him, you can see a, a middle of the order bat, but they're also, you know, didn't play in 2021, Um, you know, like you know, the health issue you were you were talking about, and really, it's not like the your confidence level in a guy from what you saw in college in 2020 could be the same as it would be in a normal year because they barely played college baseball in 2020. Um, so there's just you know, like like you know, different situations, obviously, but like somebody like him or like Royce Lewis with the twins, you know, dealing with an injury, uh, where he missed all the season where it's like, you know, you have these guys who seem like they're super talented, but you know, it's, it's tough to go off of information from like a couple years ago (laughs) on these guys, Riley, we're talking about it with these international players from earlier. And, you know, we've, we've seen a lot more from, uh, or at least at a higher level from, from Kerstad, but, um, yeah, just, just such a, such a wild card, such an X factor where, I mean, yeah, there's like an uh, an outcome where we're talking, you know, maybe by the All Star break, and he's a top 50 prospect in in baseball. But uh, we just gotta get him on the field, really, and uh, and just see how he looks this year.
2: We could do this all night, and we can't thank you enough once more for for doing this. But we'll end on this one, with Rutschman and Rodriguez highly likely to graduate from the list in the first half of the season do the Orioles have enough firepower to maintain a steady presence near the top of the organizational list between having the first pick and every round in this upcoming draft and current players rising, or, or are they going to take a pretty significant step back in the, in the next uh, update?
1: I think they'll, I think they'll still be, you know, I don't know if will be the number one system, you know, some of these other organizations at the top, although the Rays seem to always uh, be up there, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's It'll, I guess, hurt in quotes losing, you know, or graduating Rushman and and probably Rodriguez as well. But you know, you know, like the Blue Jays, right, with like Vladdy and and Bo, like that's what you want to do with with the players. But like you said, you know, having having another, you know, picking the top of the draft and and just the other high end picks that come with it and all the money uh, that comes with it. You, you have. You know, some you know these guys won't all, you know, be big you know risers. But you know, you have candidates like you know Colton Cowser or Westberg or Mayo, who we were talking about, who have a ch- or or a Connor Norby who have a chance to really move up. And and some of them will will flatline too, because that's just what happens with, uh, you know, with prospects, they're not all gonna work out. But I I you know I suspect there's, pr- I don't think the Orioles are gonna contend for a, a World Series. <laughs> trophy this year. So I I suspect they're probably going to be in a position where they're going to be trading for prospects again, come come the trade deadline. So, uh, you'll probably see, uh, you know, some more prospects coming into, uh, the organization that way. So, um, you know, I, I, think we'll, we'll still see my bet with the Orioles, I would say conservatively would still be a top 10 system in baseball. when we're, you know, hopefully having this conversation again, uh, next year and and i would say there's a pretty good chance they'll they'll still be a uh you know a top five system in the game too well ben we really appreciate your time thank you for coming on before you sign off just let our listeners know
0: what you're working on and where they can follow you on twitter
1: yeah we just came out like you know with our our top 100 prospects at at baseball america uh we got the prospect handbook for for sale so if you uh go to baseballamerica.com uh you get the top uh, 30 or really the top 40 prospects in, in each organization. Uh, so if you buy the handbook, we like to uh, give you some 10 bonus names and, and bonus reports um, through there that, that uh, aren't just on, on the website. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the lockout sucks. I'm definitely anti-lockout, but like, man, there's just so much in baseball going on right now between college baseball, starting uh, all of our prospect coverage, you know, minor league baseball, these guys are still going to play. Um, you know not the forty man guys, maybe right away it'll be a little bit awkward for uh for them, but there's you know a ton of prospects we're still keeping track of international signings and then obviously the the draft i mean Tamar johnson's still going to be playing baseball like he 's not locked out like we're going to be covering all these guys so it's uh it's just uh it's just a fun fun time of year where um you know obviously the the major leagues are in a little bit of a a lull. Right now, as far as the uh, action there, but uh, if you're if you're following prospects, we uh, definitely appreciate everybody following uh, along at uh, at Baseball America with all the all the coverage we're we're cranking out right now.
0: Well, Ben, thank you again. So uh, we really appreciate your insight and for you joining us tonight.
1: Oh, absolutely! Thank you guys for having me on. I appreciate
0: it.
3: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
0: Welcome to On the Birds. This is Zach Spedden, win as always by Bob Phil and Nick Stevens. We're coming to you live on Monday night for those watching the live stream. But last week, we did an interview with Ben Badler of Baseball America, which will be part of tonight's episode when it is released on whichever platforms you listen to your podcast. So be sure to check that out probably either later tonight, um, so later Monday night or early on Tuesday, to see the full episode, including Ben's interview, where we discuss the Orioles' latest international signing efforts, got into the depth of their farm system, and even talked a little bit about the 2022 draft and who the Orioles might take with that first overall pick. We really appreciate Ben coming on the show. He gave us some excellent insight. And I'll just start with Nick. Uh, coming off that interview, what are your thoughts really about the international efforts as you hear them from Ben Badler about how they've changed since Michael Elias and Kobe Perez took over?
3: Yeah, he didn't really have a word to describe the change, right? That's taken place uh in the system. It was really cool to hear his perspective, someone that's so well connected with on the international side of things. Um uh, I just think the one point specifically that really stood out and I hope people heard this point loud and clear. Uh if not, I want to reiterate it that uh, he, when we asked him about who are some of the sleepers in the system, you know, talking about some of the depth as far as international talents concerned. Um, he talked about the pitching and he highlighted a lot of pitchers and he seemed really intrigued by some of the young international pitching prospects the Orioles have, uh, which I thoroughly enjoyed to hear him talk about that and, and highlight that. So uh, it's almost like you know, there might actually be some pitching depth in the system, you know, something about a cupboard. But uh, yeah, fantastic interview. Really loved having Ben on and hopefully we can get him on again to talk about the system as especially as we continue to go deeper and deeper down the uh, international hole here.
2: Yeah, honestly, is probably one of the most insightful interviews I think we've done. I greatly enjoyed it. Hopefully everyone checks it out. We'll get it out in the podcast tomorrow and on YouTube later this week. But for me, the big thing that stood out was I now have a firm pick of who I want the Orioles to take at 1-1. Whereas going into the interview, I was like, I could see it being any of these six. No, I know who I want now. And uh, I'm sure you'll know who that is <laughs> since you probably just got done listening to it. But Tamar Johnson, let's go.
0: Ben definitely um, increased my enthusiasm for Tamar Johnson there. And it does feel like that rare mixture of skill set, 70 hit tool, potential 70 power and a good defender somewhere on either side of the second base bag. Uh, I'm very excited to see what Johnson does this spring to possibly improve his draft stock. So definitely on my radar, going back to the international efforts, I thought he had the most nuanced perspective I've heard in the last few years on how the international efforts from the Orioles have evolved, which is that they are still paying the price to an extent for the lack of activity they had for a long time um, by the fact that there's not a lot of depth out of the international markets towards the top of the farm system. But when you get to the bottom, you start to see a lot more. And, you know, as this you know the organization progresses over the next two or three years, you're going to see those players rise towards the top of the farm system. And this is a peat that we've made a few times in the new year, um, and I'll make it again. Really watch Delmarva this season because I think that's going to be your first big taste of players Ra- like Raul Rangel, uh, Misael De Son, Moises Chase, Moises Ramirez. So Delmarva this year, I think, is going to be a sign of things to come for the Orioles.
2: Yeah. I think we have a question about that later on and we can really dive into just how much that international flavor is going to be in Delmarva at least the beginning the year and hopefully move up to Aberdeen as the season goes on.
3: Yeah. And, you know, I, I think a lot of Orioles fans who have paid attention to this understand that this is only what year three. So when these kids are signing so young, you're making those connections when they're 13, 14 years old. We had, we had Kobe Perez on, he was talking about uh, Thomas Sosa, how they connected when he was 13 years old. Uh, you know, this is, unfortunately, you know, we know, we don't know a lot of the dark side that goes on on that side of the baseball, but um, you know, it's going to take the a couple more years before they really rein in those top, top level elite international prospects. But, Right now, I think what you're seeing is uh, this system really trusts their international scouts and in finding those diamonds in the rough, you know, that maybe they're only going to cost $150,000. But can they develop that? Raul hell? can they develop that type of pitcher and turn him into a, a top 30 prospect? And so far, I think this year, at least, is going to answer a lot of those questions about what how they can develop those kind of players. Because like you mentioned, a lot of them are going to be stateside and full season ball this year for the first time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we really appreciated Ben's uh, insight. We thank him again for coming on the show. And uh, usually we uh, take some time out during all of our episodes to welcome new members of our Patreon community, which we have here for On The Verds. Uh, we appreciate their support and we're going to sell our new members. I'll turn that over to Bob, as well as a returning member, I believe.
2: Yeah. Welcome back, Brandon Stoneberg. Nice to have you back, um, back in the fold. We also have Kenneth Di Pietro as a new patron and Keith Mayo, last name sounds familiar, but I'm sure it's no relation whatsoever.
0: Well, welcome to the new members of our community, and welcome back, Brandon. We appreciate your support. Uh, We'll move in now to listener questions. We've been pushing this out there for the last week or so as a compliment to our interview with Ben Badler. And we'll start off with one of the points that Ben Badler brought up, which is Tamar Johnson is the number one pick. We have a good question here from a listener named Logan. Did you guys have a prospect over the past few years that you were all in on, but were disappointed the Orioles didn't take him when they could have? And I'll start with Bob on this.
2: I had a hard time coming up with this just because, honestly, as much as I can rag on the Orioles, you know, drafting and, and player development over the past 10, 20 years, they honestly have taken a lot of the guys that I wanted. They, I was I was worried they weren't going to take Matt Wieters. They took Matt Wieters. I was worried they wouldn't take Manny Machado. They took Manny Machado. Same with Dylan Bundy. Uh, I wanted Kevin Galsman at the time. Even Nick Markakis, I was excited about when that happened, even though I didn't know if he would be a pitcher or a hitter. But I, Matt Hobgood was definitely not the guy to take, what was it, number four overall or something like that. So I can't remember who I wanted, but I guarantee it wasn't Matt Hobgood. So that's what I'm going to go with.
0: Well, uh, I'll – I'll jump in here because Hobgood was my answer too. And Hobgood was chosen fifth overall. Fifth. And I remember actually watching the 2009 draft and Tony Sanchez went to the Pirates to pick before that. And I knew the Orioles were not going to take Tony Sanchez. So it's like, wow, the, you know, the board's wide open now. You know, they can pretty much have, you know, their pick of players and they went with Matt Hobgood was felt like a reach to me at the time. And we now know that the 2009 draft was the year that the entire league Missed on Mike Trout, or almost the entire league. But even if you take Mike Trout out of the equation, here's some of the players that were available to the Orioles that went in the first round. Zach Wheeler went to the Giants with the next pick. Mike Minor went two picks later. Three picks later was Mike Leake. A.J. Pollock went in the middle of the first round to the Diamondbacks. Any of those players would have been great to have had. Can you imagine Mike Leake and the Orioles' rotations from 2012 to 2014, um, Mike Miner or Zach Wheeler in the rotations at any point. Imagine just briefly if there had been an outfield of AJ Pollock, Adam Jones, and Nick Markakis for the Orioles. It's just a yeah. lot of possibilities just got left there with that pick.
2: God, instead of that rotating cast of left fielders along with them. Yeah, that would have been nice.
3: Yeah, that's, it's something that I really enjoy doing. Uh, it kind of hurts a lot of times looking at that Matt Hopgood example specifically about what could have been when you look at old draft list, but yeah, I can't go back that far I was not into college baseball and the MLB draft scene uh, up until only about two or three years ago just because you know the NFL draft you see results instantly you see those first round picks in the starting lineups you NBA draft these guys can become stars within the first couple weeks of the season and you know baseball not like that so this is a much more recent thing for me um I mean I can look ahead already at 2023 2024 I've got some names that I'm already high on watching so much college baseball last year that I hope that there is a, a future marriage between them and the Orioles down the road. And so in 20 years from now, when we're still doing this podcast, hopefully uh, I've got some good names that I think you're going to be on that list, but yeah, I mean, you know, last year, I think if I go more recently, I can just say like, I hope I don't go back a couple of years from now. And my answer is Khalil Watson. Cause I got really high on Khalil Watson last year. Um, Sam Bachman out of Miami, Ohio, I had a weird thing here with like a Mac SB nation blog when I was writing about Mac baseball for a year and I fell in love with Sam Bachman. Uh, hopefully those two names don't come back to, to bite me, but yeah, college baseball is definitely a fun adventure though. And I love that we are getting more and more into this draft. Fans are getting more and more involved with the MLB draft and it's not just those first round guys. We're going deeper and deeper and deeper. People get angry when we don't do uh, three days uh, draft recaps anymore. <laughs> That's how intense this is getting. Uh, so it's, it's fun to look back though.
2: Yeah, if you look at the more recent stuff, I'd say 2020, I was fine with Kerstadt, but I was kind of getting excited for the Zach Veen rumor taking the high school outfielder number two. But he's looking pretty good, but we'll see what Kirstat can do this year. Moving on to the next question, it comes from Vivek, uh, past guest of the show. Once Adley, Grayson, and even DL graduate, is there a prospect in Orioles System that can challenge for top 10 overall in baseball? He's considering Kobe Mayo, Kowser, Gunnar Henderson. Can you guys imagine all three of them taking a step forward even more, ending the year in double A slash triple A? Let's go with Nick.
3: Um I mean top ten overall. Deal Hall has been getting some of those talks, you know, in the last couple of weeks from over at Baseball America, looking ahead. But I am gonna say among that group I'm going to say Kobe Mayo could be in that conversation. I think the national hype around him is continues to grow. And when you hear national writers talk about Mayo, it's always like, you know, even Ben Badler had this kind of the same reaction. You know, it's, well, there's some swing and miss in his games. We got to see what he can do It's you know, better pitching, but actually he didn't strike out that much in 2021. Like that's exactly the point here. Like he's going to continue to fill out physically. There's so much more power in that bat. He's so young. Uh, If he can keep continuing to limit the strikeouts, I mean, the ceiling is, is, is extremely high with Kobe Mayo. So um, as far as how will they end the season, I think Mayo and Kowser could end the year in double A. And I think Henderson is in triple A within a few weeks of turning 21 years old. And he turns 21 at the end of June. So.
0: Yeah, I agree with Nick. I think that Mayo and Kowser definitely are strong, you know, strong candidates end the year at double A and Henderson could end the year at triple A. As far as top 10 I think Henderson would get there first of anyone because Mayo right now is kind of just on the outside looking in on top 100 list. Whereas Henderson's kind of falling in the middle of the pack somewhere. And I feel like a big year between double A AA and triple A would push him into the top 10. Whereas Mayo, I could see this time next year, he's maybe top 50 to top 75. And then 2024 is when you take that big step forward. Colton Cowser. I think it's really it's going to be a matter of silencing some of the doubts about his power because everything else is there. You know, the home run power, I think, is a big question, but everything else is there. So those three would definitely be in the mix. And then obviously whoever the Orioles take 1-1 uh, in 2022 is going to have to be in that conversation as well. But we're so far out from that that it's hard to know who that's going to be.
2: Yeah, exactly. If Tamar Johnson is a 70-70 guy, I mean, he could very well compete for that top 10. But I just saw a tweet, can't remember if it was today or yesterday, from Prospects Live, who they did their Orioles top 10 or top 30 list. And Will Hofer has a quote. It was posted on, uh, it was tweeted out from Twitter as well. They have Kobe Mayo number six, just like us. They have great taste. And they said, this is someone that could very well be the best offensive prospect in baseball in a year's time. So they would go with Kobe Mayo there. Hard to disagree. I think um, Kowser, he won the distance competition at the, one of the instructs that they just did. So if he's adding some muscle and some power to that frame and he can continue to hit like 330 and add 20, 25 one power, that's that's pretty damn good. And um, Gunner, I mean, God, he's, like Nick said, he could be barely 21 and in AAA with, with his power. These guys could definitely make a run for that top 10 type stuff, but as long as they keep improving and, you know, the competition between themselves pushes them to get better and better, we'll be in good hands.
3: Yeah. I just think with Kowser, I'm trying to figure out like how to say this best without it coming off as like cold or or mean or like I'm down on him, which I'm absolutely not. I just think he's almost like too safe in in a sense. Like how high is his ceiling? Really? I think overall, he does everything really, really well. Um, but does anything really super stand out? Is that ceiling there to push him into like a top 10? That's the thing. That's my thought of what well, could probably hold him back. But I don't know. Maybe that's just me. But um, great prospect. Uh, n- another question from Vivek. Which international players do you guys believe will start the year in Marva? We'll start with Zach.
0: Well, I, I've talked about this a little bit a few minutes ago, and I would also refer back to our first show of 2022 when we dug into Bob's projected rosters. I think the names we mentioned—Moises Ramirez, Moises Chase, Raul Rangel, Misael Son, all are pretty likely to be at Del Marva to start the year. So I look for them, but I would throw Luis Ortiz's name into the mix at this point as well. Kobe Perez praised his stuff when he was on our show a couple weeks ago, and. The numbers at the Florida Complex League last year don't look great because they weren't, but it was also sort of a small sample size. There was an outing in there where he was actually hit hard by the Orioles' other FCL team, and that drove the numbers up a little bit. So that's not entirely to blame, but that was part of it. So I think if there's someone that is maybe off the radar a little bit right now for a low A assignment on opening day that gets it, I would go with Luis Ortiz, a left handed pitcher with promising stuff who, you know, maybe the Orioles feel like is ready for that challenge.
2: I wrote down a list of 13 players that I think could start at Del Marva just going through the prospects. And it's pretty exciting. You got Cesar Prieto, who I think he could probably start higher, but like we talked about last week, he he might get that, like just a cup of coffee in Del Marva to get his feet wet. You got Michelle Deson, Luis Ortiz. I agree with you, Zach. Steven Acevedo, chance he starts back in the FCL, but very well, depending how he looks in the in the spring. Could could start in Del Marva, Rayel Ranghel, Isaac De Leon, Moises Ramirez, Moises Chasse, Brian Hernandez, the catcher, Davis Tavares, Isaac Bellini, Jose Cruz, and Nolberth Romero. So I mean, let's go. That's that's pretty exciting. <laughs>
3: Yeah, uh, that's the list. I don't have anything new uh to add to that list because that's pretty extensive. Um Juan de Los Santos, I don't know if you guys mentioned that name. He's somebody that's a big guy. I don't I like these big bodied, you know, broad shoulder pitchers. And Juan de Los Santos is one of those guys. Um, I'm excited to see if we get to see him in Del Marva next year. But yeah, I was gonna see like is, is the mad behemoth in the chat tonight because uh, Jose Cruz or Josue Cruz, like I'm going to nickname him the mad behemoth. I know the numbers weren't great, but that guy's like six, four, six, five. I think he's only listed like one seventy five when I looked, but there's no way he can add another 50, 75 pounds easy. And that swing. Like when I'm watching his practice, his batting practice videos, like my wife gets concerned and I have to stop because they are just, they are beautiful swings. So I can't wait to see that swing in Delmarva.
0: Turning our attention now to the uh, major league Orioles. This comes from Logan. Do you think that Hyde is just a placeholder manager or is he going to stick around for one more competitive? And I'll start with Nick on this one. Mm,
3: I don't know. I mean, I don't really know how we're supposed to provide like an honest assessment of how Brandon Hyde's done because he's been given kind of a crap roster over these last couple of years and been putting this impossible spot, but I think guys fight for him. He fights for his guys. Literally, he will fight you for his guys. Uh, I, I don't think he's a long-term answer, but you know, I'm a fan of Hyde, wherever he ends up, whatever role he ends up, but I'm coming around more and more to this idea that, you know, is Buck Britton the future manager in waiting? Is that the plan? Because you, know, you have so many, he's a former player in the system and you have so many guys like Adley, the regiment, Grace, Grayson Rodriguez, Gunnar Henderson. You have all these guys who vouch for him and speak so highly of him. Other coaches in the system who speak so highly of him. You know, I just wonder, are we looking at a future Orioles dugout with Buck Britton, Brian Fuller, Justin Ramsey, and some others and bringing that magic uh, back to Baltimore? I don't know. Yeah, I,
2: I'm not sure what to make – I think what they might do is give him every – chance every opportunity to be the guy obviously they don't i think it doesn't matter the last three years whatever i think starting maybe this year and next year they'll give him just to see what he can do with these young guys coming up see if he meshes well with the young coaches they want to bring up in the players and maybe buck Britton will be the bench coach at some point to kind of even get more experience at the in the major league dugout and you, we know justin ramsey will eventually be up on the major league staff we got ryan fuller already they're going to bring in their guys. I think they're going to see how it meshes. And, and Buck Britton does seem like a slam dunk to be a major league coach or manager um, at some point, but you never know. If it's not Brandon Hyde, they might go outside and get someone more experienced too. So I think they'll give him the chance, but it's impossible to say right now because he's basically just been managing a Triple A team.
0: Yeah, I feel like managers uh, really across the league have gotten harder to evaluate because of, you know, how front office driven the game is now. But in the case of Hyde, I kind of agree with Nick. I like the fact that he fights for his players. I think he says all the right things publicly. As far as his in-game strategy, I can't tell you whether or not he's a good manager because he doesn't have a good roster to work with. He has, you know, over the last few years, one of the worst rosters in the league to work with. So it's really hard to evaluate. I, I do think he'll be given some opportunity to guide this team into contention. And we'll see where that goes. I did have this thought though when I saw this question. I'm gonna throw this out there. This is a general you know, gauge on where baseball is right now. If Bob Melvin gets the Padres to play to the level that they should have last year, is that gonna sort of maybe upend the idea of putting a new manager in charge of a team that needs to take that step forward and contend? Um Because he's coming in after Jace Tingler, who, you know, lasted two years and completely collapsed in the second half last year.
3: That's actually a really good question. And uh, that's a deep one to think about because, yeah, I know Tingler's issue with San Diego, from what I know, is that he just lost the clubhouse completely. And um, some of that might have been because of Eric Hosmer, but uh, he did not have the respect of that clubhouse. And so you wonder, we've said before, the Orioles are not planning to have a championship team full of homegrown prospects, as much as some people think that's the case. But uh, we all know that's not going to happen. They're going to bring in free agents. They're going to make those trades. So as much as it's cool to think about, could Buck Britton and you know Fuller and Ramsey and all these, some of these minor league instructors form that nucleus, that coaching circle in the big leagues? to mesh well with the guys coming up in the system at the same time, you know, is that going to work with a bunch of these veterans the Orioles bring in or would it be better to bring in a veteran like the Padres are doing Bob Melvin? So it's actually a pretty interesting question that I'm going to follow the Padres even more next year and see, see how that relationship works. Yeah. But then how far do you go? Is it, is it, the, would it be the manager? Or
2: would it be just like, Hey, they had another year or two gel and get experience. And that's a lot of new players brought in, to play on the same team for in the first year. Or so maybe they just had more time to, I don't know, get some clubhouse chemistry and, and all that stuff. So you can just go back and forth forever, but it's definitely an interesting question for sure.
0: Yeah. And I feel like we're, we've also seen a trend now of managers who weren't successful the first time around being more successful. You know, their next stop AJ hints that happened with Gabe Kapler did that with the giants last year or so the manager that takes the Orioles to that next step might not be the obvious answer right now. And I'll go to a question here from Simkin Tribute. Will Buck <laughs> adopt analytics with the match, referring to Buck So Walter? I'll get Bob's thoughts on this first.
2: I mean, he always talks about how, oh, I'm open-minded. I do like analytics, but I think I saw uh, John Shepard tweet out at some point that, yeah, he he likes the analytics that agree with his gut instincts So and throws out the rest, but, Hey, if he gets fully on board, maybe he's the guy. Four more years, bring him home, and we'll do it again.
3: Even if he were to adopt the analytics, uh, I don't think it's going to help the Mets because the Mets are the Mets. So I feel bad for him. I hope the Mets win. I want to see Buck win. I love Buck, but uh, that's going to be a tough job for him.
0: Yeah, I I think that's a fair assessment.
3: (laughs) All right, let's go to
2: another question from Justin. Talking about a trade that maybe could help spring things at the major league level, would you consider a trade centered around Gunnar Henderson to the Marlins for Sandy Alcantara? Or at least maybe to take it a little bit further, would you consider trading a guy like Gunnar Henderson for uh, a pitcher you know, that's, that's not fresh, but he's got a couple years of experience, he's got some success, and he's young enough to, to pitch for a few more years? Let's go with Zach.
0: Sure. I, I mean, I would consider it. Um, Alcantara's got what could turn out to be a pretty team-friendly deal uh, with the Marlins right now. My initial reaction was to go look at Alcantara's fly, home run, fly ball rates, his ex-fip, to see if maybe he was aided by playing in Marlins Park a little bit. And that really was not the case in 2021. We kind of saw the numbers neutralize a little bit. So I think what you see is what you get. I just still... In my mind, if Gunnar Henderson is what we think he could be, what his ceiling is, you don't trade that kind of player for a pitcher that has a few years under him, I don't think. But right now, I would consider it, yeah.
3: From an Orioles perspective, possibly. Uh, you know, From the Marlins perspective, though, I think they just gave him that contract extension, if I read that correctly, like five years, 50-plus million dollars. So, yeah, it's, it is team friendly, but the Marlins just dished out that money to him. And I didn't do a deep look at the Marlins roster, but I feel like they have to be ready to contend in the NL East. Um, if not now, I don't know when they're going to, but I feel like that's a roster that could compete. Um, so I don't see why they would make that move, uh, even though they're, they're pitching also off the top of my head. I could be wrong here as well, but I feel like their pitching is also pretty deep. So if you want to look to trade for pitching, the Marlins could be a good franchise, but yeah, I think broadened it out. If trading Gunnar Henderson for a starting pitcher an established veteran starting pitcher, I would say absolutely. But first, like show me next off season. Not right now. I'm not trading Gunnar Henderson right now for a starting pitcher because what's that going to solve? But next off season, and I haven't looked at whose possible free agents are going to be next off season, but sign a, a proven veteran, a third baseman or shortstop to bring in, then sure then trade Gunnar Henderson for a starting pitching prospect who can be in the top three in a major league playoff rotation. I'm hundred percent fine with that, but not right now. Yeah. I was going to make that same exact point. Like what is
2: the Sandy Alcantara going to do for the Orioles right now in 2022? Right. So yeah, if I would definitely consider, and maybe this time next year or a year and a half from now, I think that's definitely an option depending on, you know, what's, what's Westberg doing? How's Kobe Mayo looking? And like you said, yeah, sign someone, so you don't really, you're not relying on a Gunnar Henderson coming up and, and coming right out of the gates hot to to be successful. So, yeah, I think I'm going to agree with you guys completely.
3: Another Patreon question from Robert says, do we have a chance at the title in A?" Bob? Of course. I mean, <laughs> let me look at our roster, projected
2: roster. Look at this. I mean, Henderson, Ortiz, Riser, Haskins, D.L. Hall, Drew Rahm, that's to start of the season. I mean, I don't know. I think it's going to be, look what they did last year. And it wasn't like the opening day roster for double A wasn't like loaded with our top 20 talent or anything. So yeah, I definitely think we'll be right in the mix. We got a deep talented farm system and a lot of the top guys are starting there. So I, I think so.
0: Yeah. The outcome of the minor leagues can be incredibly hard to predict for so many different reasons. With that being said, yeah, if I were a Bay Sox fan, I'd be feeling pretty good about my chance the chances of my team being competitive because the opening day roster is going to be pretty good. And I think that's even if you end up in a situation where Jordan Westbrook starts at Norfolk, that's still going to be a really good team. And there's a lot of talent in Aberdeen uh, to start next year. So they're going to have plenty of opportunities to get, you know, players up from the lower levels that help them as, you know, the Westbergs, the Hendersons, DL Hall, Joey Ortiz inevitably move up. There's gonna be a lot of talent behind them.
3: Yeah, I think the that early season roster is definitely going to be stacked. Uh, I would be more concerned about what does that roster look like at the end of the year because I think a lot of the pitching staff. I was doing some like early look aheads, looking at Aberdeen's roster and where guys are at. You know, I don't know if Bowie's going to get that Drew Rom, Jordan Westberg, Gunner Henderson influx at the end of the year to help propel them into a championship but you know there are a lot of pitchers like Zach Peake, Brandon Young, Noah DeNoyer, Jake Lyons you're going to see a lot of those guys come up from Aberdeen to Bowie and in the in the year in Bowie and I said last week a couple weeks ago when we were talking about the coaching assignments Josh Conway the new pitching coach in Bowie I think he's going to be a star this year and so I'm anxious to see what he can do with the pitchers on that roster uh, and we got the comment here, Kyle Moore is going to take this team to a championship. You have a rising head coach, manager, and Kyle Moore there as well. Um, uh, title, sure, but I'm more interested to see do guys that come up from Aberdeen take those big leaps like we saw last year when they made that jump, and uh, I think if they do, then we've got some more future coaching studs on our hands out here in the minor leagues. Uh, you left off
2: one name on that pitcher's that will end the year in double-A. Uh,
3: Gene, Gene yeah. Pinto,
2: baby. <laughs> That's, okay. um, that's okay. made in heaven. Title. That's it. That's it. He's going to put the put the foot down on the on the championship. All
3: right. If it's game five of the double A, what is double <laughs> Eastern League, whatever it is, now. whatever they're called. <laughs> yeah. If it's game five of that championship series and Gene Pinto's on the mound, it's a lock. Bowie's got the ring.
0: That's about as good of a prediction I think we can make right now on February seventh. <laughs> um, so here's an interesting question from Tom: What do they do to eliminate tanking? a lottery draft and i'll start with bob here so this is referring to mlb and part of the never-ending cba discussions and the prospects of a draft lottery being instituted
2: all right so no i have what i'm not the commissioner i don't know what they're going to do they got to do something because yeah i think a, uh, a lottery draft will probably help i think there's been some convoluted like uh Proposals out there as far as like you can only have a top five pick twice, two years in a row, other than that, and small market, big market, they gotta do do put their heads together and do something. I think it's in the best interest of both parties in this case. So I I don't I don't
3: know. <laughs> yeah. Um I kind of the same answer, Tom. Like, um, I just don't know. If I feel like if there was a good answer, then uh Hopefully, we still wouldn't be in this lockout February seventh. Um, something definitely does have to be does have to happen. I know there's talk of salary floor, but I don't think that's going to happen at all. We've mentioned before if there's a salary floor, if that just means that Jordan Lyles is going to get twenty five million dollars from a team like the Orioles who aren't prepared to compete. Um, you know, it's just not something that I really worry about. Honestly, like I'm just I just want to watch baseball. I know there are big issues, and yeah, we don't want to. We don't want another Orioles team doing this. We don't need eight teams because what last year's All Star break coming out of last year's All Star break weren't there only like you know ten teams that were actually competing. Like the league doesn't need that, but at the same time, I have no idea how to fix this, and I think that's the issue that players and owners don't know how to fix this either.
0: Yeah, the, based on you know the reports we were hearing about the CBA in recent weeks, my sense was kind of that the draft lottery is on the table, it might be inevitable, but that the two sides can't agree on the scope of it. And that maybe, you know, I'm thinking rationally, which I'm not sure they are, but maybe rationally, the thing to do would be just to put that issue off for another five years and revisit it when you get these more contentious points out of the way. But as far as the draft lottery goes, I was actually looking into this a little bit. And the NBA, which I don't follow, so I had to bring myself up to speed on this. But, you know, you heard 76ers tanking, um, you know, back in the previous decade. The one thing that a lot of NBA writers that I read, especially over at SI.com, the ringer, shout out to both of them, um, that they thought reversed some of the trends of tanking was flattening the lottery odds, uh, where by the top pick or the team was the worst record, didn't have the highest percentage of the top overall pick. Instead, the teams with the three worst records had the same odds, and the team with the worst worst record could fall as low as fifth in the draft. So I say that because the NBA is a sport where the draft has a much more immediate impact and where a rebuild can happen a lot faster. And in baseball, I think you're going to have to pair a draft lottery with a lot of other elements. You're going to have to pair it with eliminating service time manipulation. Uh, you're going to have to solve, you know, you know, the luxury tax, um, the salary floor, if that's even in play. There's a lot of things you're going to have to go in conjunction with it. So I think it could help, but on its own, it's not going to be part of the solution. I also don't know, given the development timetable for these players, is it realistic to get rid of a rebuild that is shorter than three years i agree that five and six years is a lot but is it realistic to cut it down to more than like three
3: my only thing with the draft lottery and you know there is that idea well if it's a lottery you're not guaranteed if you have the worst record you could end up with the fourth pick uh in the draft i got the 2020 draft rankings we were talking about it before we came on the air i got the 2020 draft results right here and all right so the orioles don't get the number two pick they get the number four pick oh darn we got asa lacy or, you know, Austin Martin, which I know, like, knowing what we know now, it could be a different answer. But going into that 2020 draft, I would have been completely fine with those guys, too. So, like, is that still going to deter teams from tanking? Uh, actually, with the four pick, we probably would have taken Heston Kerstads.
2: <laughs>
0: so <laughs> That's what, <true>. is, <laughs> what difference would it make, right? So, <laughs> that example there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, yeah, so I got the answer. It's expand the league, 32 teams, 32 team playoffs. There's no such thing as tanking anymore. That's it. <laughs>
0: I will right. add this <laughs> a programming note that Dr. Stephen Loftus is joining us next week, and I have already talked to Stephen, and one of the things we are going to discuss during his interview is the prospect of a draft lottery, and that's someone who's worked on a draft before from the inside with the Tampa Bay Rays, so I know that he'll probably have some really in-depth uh, answers for us there. For sure. but uh, Yeah, that'll
2: be good. We'll and some contribute. In- Yeah, sorry. I was just going to – I threw this up here because it reminded me of something I actually listened to on Ben Badler's podcast, Future Projection, which everyone should check out, um, is under slot strategy a factor. And they were talking about on there how with the international draft most likely coming, it's going to be – looks like it's going to be hard slots where if you draft this person in this slot, this is how much you pay them flat out. So, And they were talking about how that could eventually – If it shows to be successful, that could translate to the amateur draft as well. So, yeah, I think that might be something you have to do if you do a lottery because then, like we just talked about, uh, the Orioles would get their person pretty much no matter what because they were doing the under-slot
0: strategy or –
2: I don't know. It's definitely definitely a factor, I think. Now let's – okay.
0: Yeah, I could definitely see it as a factor.
2: Um, I like this question from Hunter Davis. How would you all rank the Orioles minor league uniforms?
3: Let's go with Nick. This is a question I thought a lot about uh, because it's pretty easy though. The Norfolk tides green tops are my absolute favorites currently in the system right now. Um, Nothing's going to ever match like their jerseys from like 20 years ago. The wavy T logo, the blue, but I know we're not going back there. Um, So the tides green jerseys. I love those buoys, the ghost crabs, Chesapeake Ghost Crab jerseys. Those are awesome. Those are probably my number, number two. The Norfolk Tides Home Whites with the green outline. I love those. Uh, as you can see, there's there's a Norfolk bias there. But I'd put them number three. Then Norfolk jerseys again. The Parajitos de Norfolk. The orange. The orange pants got to go, but I like those jerseys. We need more Norfolk coffee jerseys. Bring those back. Um, then give me the Delmarva Scrapple. Put them on my list. I do like that. That's unique. Um, then I put Delmarva's regular jerseys and then Bowie's last. I did not put Aberdeen on my list only because I need to see him on the field first, but I think Aberdeen's jerseys could land two or three on my, my top five, top 10 list there.
0: I actually am intrigued by what Aberdeen did this off season with their, uh, uniforms, particularly the powder puff blue. like Nick. I want to see them on the field, but. No one else in the Orioles farm system is going to do that. I think the Tides to do it with the wavy T logo. I think that would look great. But um, Aberdeen, for now, probably going to be the only Orioles affiliate out there wearing powder puff blue jerseys. So I want to check them out. I think Delmarva has generally done a good job mixing in orange jerseys every now and then. Uh, I like the Norfolk jerseys that Nick mentioned, and I think of the Bay Sox uniform, the orange one with buoy and uh, black black letters is my favorite um, the shorebirds and bay socks uniforms to me kind of look like the orioles uniforms of the 90s and early 2000s they're kind of similar in that respect but yeah i, I think that i really want to see those powerpuff blue uniforms in aberdeen in action next year
2: i have to admit norfolk has a great batch of uniforms i love the coffee stuff their, even their pink uniform really pops. You know, the green, the orange, it, it's all good. So I'll put them number one. I do think that Aberdeen blue is going to look pretty good. They're, those uniforms look pretty nice. And Delmarva, I don't know. It doesn't. Maybe it's just the camera angle. It doesn't look that great on minor league uh, TV, but Bowie's got to be last. It's a little bit boring. I do like their logo, like their hat probably the best, but just overall look is kind of bland. So and what were they wearing? Like some kind of uh, blue with firearms. I can't remember when we went and saw them. They had some weird, weird alternate uniforms on. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's how I'd go. Yeah,
3: the jerseys. Jerseys. Minor league jerseys are fun, though. Definitely love talking about those. Um, next question. Another one from Vivek. Which of the batch of sophomores do you feel like will take a step forward and be a stable rotation starter? And he throws out the name Keegan Aiken, Alex Wells, Bruce Zimmerman, Michael Bauman, Dean Kramer, and Zach Lowther So go with Zach first.
0: I think Bauman has the best chance of sticking the starter in that group just because the stuff is so good. I think he needs to build his repertoire back a little bit, which is why I expect he's going to start the season at Norfolk. Mm-hmm. But I think he has the best chance of sticking the rotation out of that group. Something tells me Aiken's going to end up in the bullpen long term. Zimmerman and uh, Wells might trend the same way. Kramer, I really want to see a click for him as a starter, but I'm just not sure it's going to happen after last year.
2: I think Vivek is shortchanging Bruce Zimmerman, who did a pretty good job of being a stable rotation starter last year. Obviously, he missed some time, but I'm going to give Zimmerman a pass. And I think Bauman should still count as a freshman. I mean, what did he get a couple games in? He's a redshirt freshman next year, so – I think Alex Wells is my guy. I think he's going to take a big step forward. I think you looked at how great he pitched when he was in AAA, and it seemed like there was just like a little bit of a mental block making that jump up to the major league level. I think we're going to see him come out and really be more confident in 2022, get that pinpoint control that he's known for in the minor leagues back and really impress some people and win a starting rotation spot out of spring training and hopefully maintain it the whole year. Aiken and Kramer. I'm not too high on. I think Kramer could still bow. I like Kramer better as a starter still than Aiken. I think Aiken could be a decent reliever. And I think Zach Luther will probably be like a nice two, three inning guy, nice swing man type. I'm not sure if he's ever going to make it into the rotation, unfortunately, but we'll see.
3: It's a vital question that I think the Orioles were hoping they would get more answers last year, but you know, I agree with Bowman. I think, you know, fresh start with him in 2022. Um, So I give him a pass there. I got Zimmerman at the top of my list. I wish those injuries would have happened last year. I think he's a little underrated, and I actually think he can stick in a major league rotation. Um, And I had to be convinced, but I think he's done a good job of convincing me. Um, Kramer, I'd rank him third. But if it's up to me, his leash is extremely short. Last season just left this bad taste in my mouth uh Lothar, i put four on my list but i've said for a long time i think he belongs in the bullpen i think he'd be more successful there so that's where i, I kind of hope the orioles put him there after they just last year was a complete loss and that was the orioles fault i'll say that over and over again then i put aiken five whatever uh and i had Alex Wells six and wells is weird for me because i'm actually reverse of bob like <laughs> i'm just he doesn't do it for me he was one of my favorite pitchers to watch in the minor leagues but when i think about Wells as a major leaguer it just doesn't do anything for me. Every time he pitches and somebody makes contact, I hold my breath and I get scared. It's gone. So I, I don't know. Again, I think I said this last year, prove me wrong, Alex. And he kind of did last year. So maybe he'll do it again. He's going to pitch till he's 45, like Jamie Moyer. You
2: heard it here first. Good.
0: So along a similar lines, we have a question here from Brandon. What would you say is the best and worst case for some of the guys who struggled or were mostly absent last year? And he cites Mason McCoy, Rylan Bannon, Isaac Matson, Zach Lothar, UCL Diaz, and Brett Cumberland as examples. And I'll start with Bob on this one.
2: Oof, okay. I'll go in order that he lists them in. McCoy, best case scenario, half the roster gets injured in spring training and he makes it as the last man on the bench. Worst case, he gets released. Um, Rylan Bannon, best case, I actually – I want to save something for prediction episode, but I think he has a chance to make the team out of spring training. He had so much bad luck. I just don't even know what to make of his season last year. So I think best case, he just starts hot and kind of starts the way he had in that two-week stretch or maybe not quite that good and could maybe – I mean, what's his competition? Kelvin um, Gutierrez at their base, or so maybe he starts the season in the major leagues. Worst case, he could be DFA'd in the spring. Uh, Isaac Mattson, best case – he comes back, proves that last year was kind of a, a blip on the radar, wins a job on, in the bullpen and starts the season. Again, worst case, I think it's potentially he could be DFA'd. Zach Lothar wins a starting spot in the rotation in spring training. Worst case, you know, gets knocked around a little bit, starts back in AAA. I don't think there's that bad of a case for him. You Diaz. Finally healthy, has an amazing spring training, wins a job. Anthony Santander is traded, and he wins a job at the Major League roster. Worst case, he's either traded or DFA'd. And Brett Cumberland, I mean, there's no Major League catchers, right? So, uh, I mean, if the service timing manipulations are still in play, uh, all it takes is an injury or two, and he could be on the opening day roster. Worst case, he's still Brett Cumberland. That sounded worse than um, I meant.
3: <laughs> yeah, I think I just think Mason McCoy is fine. Triple A depth piece. I don't think you're going to get much more out of him. His AAA numbers: seventy four WRC plus and a two twenty one batting average. I was afraid that would kind of happen when he reached that level. So I think that is best case scenario. He's AAA depth. Um, Bannon. I think best case scenario for him is that Kelvin Gutierrez hits like a buck fifteen. And the Orioles decide to move on. They realize the defense just isn't worth it. uh, And Bannon gets his shot at third base. Um, But I don't think he has a long leash because he's already on that 40-man roster. And are the Orioles going to keep him around to use that spot for too much longer? Diaz, I think best case scenario, he stays healthy for two months. Just give me two months. I don't think he's been able to do that in three years. But stay healthy April of May. Hit well. And the Orioles can trade him. And salvage some value because I don't. I'm not banking putting any money down on DS staying healthy for a full year. So if you can get two months, trade them. It's a win-win for everybody. Um, Lowther, I just mentioned future bullpen piece. Uh, Orioles didn't give him an opportunity last year, and it's pretty frustrating in my opinion. Matson, I think is just someone who everybody stopped talking about. We were really high on Matson. I think he was a top thirty guy or just outside of our top thirty two years ago because he was a piece of that Bundy trade. It was closest to the major leagues. But again, he was on that Norfolk taxi squad a lot. Um, I believe he had some personal off the field issues that probably set him back. Um, More important than baseball, I think. So I think a fresh 2022 could be good for him. And Brett Cumberland, I think best case scenario is he catches on with another team. Finds a home there.
0: Yeah, going through this group, I agree with both of you about Mason McCoy and Rylan Bannon. McCoy is good AAA depth. Bannon, if he can stay healthy and kind of regain his form offensively, I think has a shot to be at least a part-time player in the major leagues at some point early in the year. Mattson and Lothar, I'm going to kind of group together here because I do think that neither of them were able to really settle into a consistent routine last year, and that hurt their results. And though the, the taxi squad was necessary because of everything with the pandemic, I kind of hope it goes away this year because developmentally, I just don't know that a player going on the road for three to six days at a time, not playing in games. um, I don't think that's better for them than being back in AAA, at least having an opportunity for regular innings out of the bullpen or to take their turn in the rotation or, you know, for playing time. So I kind of hope that both of them get more normal routines in 2022 with Matson, we know that that's pitching out of the bullpen somewhere. With Lothar, I've said it time and time again, and I'll repeat it tonight just pick a role for him, groom him for that, and just see if he can be successful. If you think he's going to be a reliever, start working with that, start working towards that now. If you want to see if he can stick in the rotation, I think that's a perfectly reasonable uh, goal. Put him in the rotation, put him in rotation at Norfolk or Baltimore, but regardless. Make sure he's taking the ball every five days and has consistent opportunities. Uh, Diaz, I'm kind of split between where Bob and Nick are on this. I guess part of me still wants to see Diaz in the Orioles uniform, but then I also know with his injury history and the fact that you now have Kyle Stowers, who is a better prospect right there lined up for right field. I think anything you get from Diaz, as long as he is healthy, is the best-case scenario. Worst case scenario, he gets hurt. You know He battles injuries this year, and at some point during the season or shortly after the season and uh, he's DFA'd. Cumberland, the catching depth of this organization right now is a lot of 4A players and Adley Rutzman, and I don't know where that leaves Cumberland. So I feel like after the lockout to see what the Orioles do with the 40-man roster at that position probably tells us a lot about their plans for Cumberland because – how many catchers, even if Adley Rutzman starts the year in the major leagues, how many catchers are you actually going to carry at Norfolk? And would you take Brett Cumberland over any of their free agent acquisitions or Nick Sufo? I don't know.
3: A lot of depth. A lot of depth. We'll see how the catching situation shakes out. But all of those guys, I'm thinking maybe, probably except for Zach Louther, I think this is it for a lot of those guys. They got one more chance. Uh, Louther, I don't know. Again, like we've mentioned a couple of times, they just – they don't know what they want to do with him, and it's frustrating. Um, another question here, Vivek, another one. What is your projection for heston Kerside this year? Games, what level, batting average, on-base percentage, and home runs? Start with Zach.
0: I'll go somewhat – maybe it's conservative, I'm not sure, but I'll say it's going to be Delmarva and Aberdeen for his levels. I think he gets in a full season where He's healthy. Um, as far as the specific numbers go, I don't know that I f- feel like I have enough right now to jump right in and say, you know, Kerstad's going to hit 20 home runs or he's going to hit seven. But I think that it would be, you know, reasonably, you know, reasonable to expect some return to form with his power. I do think that I would not be surprised if we see him D eight once or twice a week. Just to keep him in the lineup but reduce the wear and tear a little bit coming, you know, trying to come back from myocarditis. I don't know exactly how the Orioles are going to handle that. But I my expectation is that he's going to have a healthy and productive year and that he'll play at multiple levels. You'll at least see him at Del Marva and Aberdeen. In the absolute best case scenario, he gets in two or three levels and ends the year at Bowie.
2: I do, I do think he's going to end the year in Bowie. It might be like a Gunnar Henderson thing where it's kind of just at the tail end and just to say that he got there kind of and give him that little little boost. But I'll say he plays about 115 games. That's like 270 with a 350
3: on base and hits 18 home runs. I was, a little low. For
2: you?
3: <laughs> oh. I was a little lower in all those. I said 110 games between Delmarva and Aberdeen, 260 average, 330 on base percentage with 14 home runs. Why not?
2: Yoni wants to know knowing what you know now, would you still take Kirstad at two, especially with the less than spectacular starts that Emerson Hancock, Asa Lacy, and Austin Martin have had? Nick?
3: Uh, I mean, I really did like Lacey coming into that draft. I still like him. Um, but pro- knowing what we know now, yes, I would still take Kirstad. Uh, you know, you just mentioned he could end the year at Bowie. I don't think there's. Uh, that's outrageous uh to end with a week or two in buoy so it'd still be on track for a 2023 in the late 2023 or 2024 in the major leagues um if all goes right and you know for me it's look at the back end of that draft look at carter balmer look at kobe mayo do the orioles get those two guys if they don't take gerstad i don't know so for right it's way way too early but for right now i say yeah still cool with it
0: yeah i agree i wouldn't do that over um I think that, you know, Kersad lost last year, which is disappointing, but I still think there's real upside here. And like Nick said, that draft is, you know, you got to put a lot of emphasis on the fact that the Orioles were able to go get Kobe Mayo and Carter Baumler, who had really strong college commitments and were hard to sign. Uh, Some teams, I guess, viewed them as unsignable, and the Orioles were able to get them. So, yeah, I would take Kersad again, knowing what we know now.
2: Yeah, especially at the top part of the draft. There's actually some more interesting names towards the bottom for me, like Jordan Walker, Cade Cavalli, Justin Foskew, Mick Abel. There's some interesting guys. but uh, Or Zach Wiener, Reed Detmers, like I talked about earlier. But Max Meyer, Asa Lacey, Austin Martin, Emerson Hancock. I don't know if they're really blowing you out of the water as far as, like, oh, we should have got them. So, yeah, why not stick
3: with the guy we got who hasn't even had a chance to step on the field yet? Sure. Uh, speaking of another trade, I actually heard this on a Mariners podcast this morning. And so I, I threw it out there because it made me stop and think, I don't know about you guys, but it, the p- trade proposal was Matt Brash and justice Sheffield for Kyle Bradish. and they were Mariners guys. They thought Brad Braddish and Brash were kind of similar in terms of like ceiling and prospect status. Uh, and so they felt like, no, because you're just kind of swapping prospects. So why, you know, why move on from Brash keep, grooming your own guy there but from an Orioles perspective it made me stop and think like would is that a trade you're going to think about doing We go. You know, I you.
2: yeah I thought about this a little bit when I saw you post this question and I came to, to like the same conclusion I'm like Matt Brash is kind of like Kyle Bradish, but just like a year behind so I'm like I don't know I'm pre- and Orioles are pretty high on Bradish, as we know as am, as am I so and Justice Sheffield, I mean, no offense to the guy, but he's had some injuries and some ineffectiveness. I'd rather kind of just stick with the guys that were that way for us last year and see if they can rebound. So I'll take the Kyle Braddish that's here a year, a year sooner and uh, stick with him. But it's definitely an interesting question.
0: Yeah, it is. And I feel like from the Orioles' perspective, you would have to really want Justice Sheffield. because I don't know that there's much separation from Braddish and Brass other than what Bob mentioned, which is that Braddis is probably going to get to the major leagues a year sooner. Um, Based off of what I've seen, I would have concerns about Sheffield moving from Seattle in the AL West to Baltimore in the AL East um, and the injury history. So that's a deal I would probably pass on, but it is still an interesting hypothetical.
3: Yeah. I normally hate hypothetical trades so much. I refuse to come up with them. But I heard that one, and it just made me stop and think. So I thought I'd throw that out there. But I think I'd agree with, with you guys on there.
1: So
0: this one comes from uh, Eric Garfield. Best case scenario for Carter Baumler And what do we expect his 2022 to look like? We need another ace. I will start with Nick here.
3: Best case scenario for Baumler, I think I said before that I think he takes a big leap this year. Um, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I had him on the back end of my top 30 just because he hasn't pitched in two years. He had tw- no high school, uh, no pro ball in 2020 because of the pandemic, Tommy John surgery in 2021. But you look at those pre-draft reports, and they're promising. And I think when you look at pitchers in the system, Grayson Rodriguez, D.L. Hall, maybe Gene Pinto, those might be the only guys with a higher ceiling. I mean, you're talking best-case scenario, highest ceiling. Those could be the only guys uh, with a higher one than Carter Ballmer. So I don't know if that's bold, but I'm going to say that. Um, so I, I imagine he gets eased back into things, though. A lot of starts in the FCL, probably most of the year in the FCL, maybe a cup of coffee to end Delmarva, some two, three-inning starts to end the year. But just like Heston Kershaw, the Orioles are probably going to take it really easy on him. Ease their way back in, both ease both of these guys back in because it's been a pretty brutal journey for both of them up to this point. So whatever we can get, I'm gonna take it, I'm gonna enjoy it. I'm really excited to watch Carter Baumler pitch this year.
2: Yeah, I have to echo most of that. I think if you're talking absolute best case scenario, it's Gene Pinto 2.0. He starts the year in FCL, dominates, moves up to Del Marva for a handful to 10 starts, dom- continues to dominate there, and ends the year as like a top 15, 20 prospect in the system, according to us. So, um, yeah, I think that's very possible. But at the very least, it, just be healthy and pitch the season, and his potential is pretty high. So
0: Exactly. I just um, double checked. I had Ballmer 26 on my list. I think that a season right around what Gene Pinto had last year, which was 66 and two-thirds innings could be reasonable, maybe a little lower because Ballmer is coming off the Tommy John surgery and really didn't pitch in 2020. He lost, I think he only had one outing his senior season. So he really has not pitched the last two years. So the Orioles should take it slow with him, and I think they're going to. But I think there's a possibility that he goes to the FCL, puts together a really really good start, gets some time in Delmarva, even if it is, let's say, three starts the end of the year. And you're going into 2023 feeling really good about him as a guy that could move up prospect rankings quickly and who in his first full season might break out in a big way. For sure.
2: And before I ask the last question of the night, Dominic Corelli would like to know who should the Orioles take with
3: the first pick in 2022? Are we all in agreement? Uh, I mean, it's only February. So I haven't picked my favorite yet. Um, Steven Loftus might change that next week. I definitely really enjoyed all the talk about Tamar Johnson. If he is that type of player that Ben Badler said he is, um, then it's hard to pass up. I will say that I, as much as I love the college guys, Brooks Lee, Chase uh, DeLauter, Chase Young, Jace or Josh, whichever one is in college right now, um, I'm kind of really excited about the idea of the Orioles taking one of the high schoolers with this extremely high ceiling Put him in the system. And let's have some fun with him. Um, you know, we played it pretty safe. Uh, I've enjoyed all the college picks, but uh, we played it safe to build up this farm system. Let's start taking some chances. Roll the dice a little bit.
0: Right now, I would say Tamar Johnson would be the Orioles' pick and should be the Orioles' pick. Um, it is February, so my answer might change five times between now and the draft. But I would say Johnson. But as Nick said, a lot of high. Sp- high ceiling high school guys this year plus some interesting college bats and we'll get into this more next week when we have Steven Loftus on but there's really six names right now that I would feel okay with if the Orioles took them with the first pick
2: it's Tamar Johnson I mean obviously look this is with <laughs> this is with what we know now obviously the seasons haven't even started college baseball starts this coming weekend or next weekend so clearly things can change in a heartbeat especially in that young of players but from what we know right now, Tamar Johnson is a once-in-a-generation type
3: talent, according to Ben Badler, which... And not Let's just Ben. It. I mean, MLB yeah, Pipeline. Yeah, yeah. Who were the two comps MLB Pipeline had? I can't remember. Wade Boggs and like, Tony Gwynn Mix. Oh, or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Vlad Senior. Oh, That's yeah, yeah. Vlad Senior. It's absurd. So, yeah, I mean, underslot or overslot, I mean, I don't care. With this last chance probably to have the first pick in the draft, unless you look at some predictions I saw that had the Orioles as the worst record again in 2022, but whatever. Um, yeah. I think I, I would, I would do it. I would do tomorrow Johnson. And again, that could change, but as of right now and our last question comes from someone named Rob Raylan, who <laughs> would, would like us to predict the Orioles top 10 prospects this time next year. Uh, just a fun exercise. I wanted to <laughs> go through with and force these guys to do as well. So, <laughs> let's start with Zach.
0: Is Rob Railin the name that you use to check in the hotel so no one can find you? Because <laughs> that's really original. It's very
2: <laughs> inconspicuous.
0: All right. So i I went along with this exercise, and this is my very, very early uh, top ten prediction for 2021. Number one is going to be Tamar Johnson. Number two, Gunnar Henderson. Number three, D.L. Hall, who I don't think is going to graduate in 2022, but will come into 2023 as one of the top pitching prospects in the game. Number four, Kobe Mayo. Number five, Colton Kowser, Number six, Jordan Westberg. Number seven, Heston Kurstad. I went with Connor Norby at eighth. I think the power is going to show up this year, and some of the really bullish, optimistic uh, projections for him are going to be even more valid after a good 2022 season. At number nine, Gene Pinto, of course. Uh, he's going to have a big year again, and he's just going to continue to move up this list. And at number 10, I went with Michael Hernandez. I know it's only going to be the FCL, but a lot of people both inside and outside the Ori- Orioles organization seem pretty high on him. I think he's going to have a good year down in Florida. Maybe like Misele Deson last year gets a brief cup of coffee uh, at Del Marva to end the year. I was split between Daysohn and Hernandez um, at 10. And honestly, I could be persuaded that it should be Daysohn, but I'm going to sit with Hernandez. All
3: right. My top 10 looking ahead, I said number one, don't throw things at me. I said Grayson Rodriguez. Uh, I'm going to say he doesn't shake the prospect eligibility this year. I'm looking at the Orioles' past history, their track record, all the craziness going on. I know I want him on opening day on the roster, but. I think he sticks around for a little bit long on the prospect list. So I'm going to say Grayson Rodriguez, one. Number two, it's going to be one, one, whoever that may be. Three, I do have Gunnar Henderson. I also have Henderson. ahead, had jumping DL Hall, I have it. Number four, five, Colton Kowser, six, Kobe Mayo, seven, Jordan Westberg, eight, Heston Kerstad, nine, Connor Norby, and 10, Gene Pinto. Bauman, Stowers, Bradish all graduate as well. All
2: right. I did a top 15. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> number one, Tamar Johnson. Of course, I think that's – if we take him, that talent is there. Number two, D.L. Hall. I agree with Zach that he will not graduate this year. And Nick, you might have said that too. Sorry. <laughs> I was I was a little distracted for a second. Number three, Colton Kowser. Number four, Gunnar Henderson. Number five, Kobe Mayo. Number six, Jordan Westberg. Seven, Hessen Kerstad. Eight, Gene Pinto. There we go. Uh, number nine, Connor Norby. Number ten, Drew Rom. Number eleven, Joey Ortiz. Twelve, Michael Hernandez. Thirteen, Michelle Dosan. Fourteen, Hudson Haskin. Fifteen, Samuel Basayo.
0: I like Rom in the top ten. I considered him too. That's bold, and I like
1: it.
3: Shout out to Prospects Live, who had has Rom at number ten right now. They get it. They're my favorite prospect list, other than ours. You guys are. You guys know what's up.
2: Vivek says, "I wonder if Gene Pinter knows how much we love him." He does. He does. Don't worry
3: about that. (laughs) He does. Trust me.
0: All right. So before we wrap up here, and I know we've been at this for a while, but Bob, Nick, any last minute questions come to mind here? You just feel like throwing out just for the fun of it.
2: When does spring training start?
3: Yeah, I was going to say how much longer until April. Was it 8th? The tide start. Yeah, that that was my question. I'm ready for this. I'm excited.
0: Spring training will start in the middle of March
2: yeah I think if the season's gonna start on time, they'd have to be come to an agreement within the next week, which uh doesn't seem possible. so yeah I think I think you're right.
0: Nick, you look like you want to say something like kind of bold and disappointing are nope. you gonna predict that the season's <laughs> gonna get canceled?' no
3: <laughs> I froze for a second. I'm good now. okay, you're all good. I got nothing to add i don't i have I'm losing more and more hope. Uh, obviously this season's not gonna start on time. I'm just scared of how many games we are going to end up losing. Um, I don't think there's going to be this last second. Here's a rush. We got to start. Let's crack this deal. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, so I'm just looking ahead to minor league baseball April 8th. Let's go.
0: Yes. And we are definitely looking forward to the start of the minor league season here at on the Verge. And no, we are not running out of things to cover this winter uh, as evidenced by the fact we'll be joined next week by Dr. Stephen Loftus, uh, who's kind of been a regular on this show since we started back in 2020. We know he's one of our listeners' favorite guests. He's going to be coming on to help us preview the high school and college baseball seasons. And we'll get into a little bit of draft lottery talk, too, with him. And as a programming note, we will be on Wednesday next week live. So if you watch us on our live stream, plan to tune in on Wednesday night, the 16th. If you listen to us on podcasts, check whatever uh, the app you listen to your podcast on either late that night or early the following morning, and our show with Dr. Stephen Loftus will be there. So thank you for uh, listening to tonight's episode. For Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. this is Zach Spedden. You've been listening to On the Verge.
2: Go Bengals.